the slide up, <coughs> please, Paul. Thank you. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we're now in uh, the third Sunday of our four-part series on eternity, we've called it. And the first week, John uh, led us through talking about what, what happens when we die, what happens beyond. And last week, David helped us scratch the surface of the supernatural realm around us at the moment. Next week, I'm going to talk about the new earth. I'm going to talk about what happens when God calls it a day. He says our number's up as a, as a species, as, as mankind, and he's going to do something new what that will look like for us believers. We're going to look at that because there can be a bit of mythology and a bit of confusion about, around that as well. This week, I'm going to talk about something that really gets a mention these days, to be honest, in the church at large. And actually at Beacon Hill, we don't talk about it. We do mention it, but we don't talk about it enough. And we thought it, it was appropriate we spend a Sunday talking about this subject. And it is a bit of a hot potato. Um, some people believe it's not even true. It's just a myth. Even people who read the Bible and believe in the Bible explain it away with different, different means. Some people find it hugely offensive. I understand why. Some people are just so fearful of the subject they'd rather not think about it. And it's nice to bury your head in the sand. But we need to talk about it. It's hell. And we need to talk about hell. It's in the Bible. And what I want to do today, my aim is to dispel false notions and confusion. I want to be honest without fear-mongering. It's okay. I want us to in the next half hour or so, be able to embrace what we do know about hell and be content to know there's lots that we don't. Okay? Is that all right? Um, the fact of the matter is, hell is not a concept dreamed up by fire and brimstone preachers. You're a sinner, you're going to hell, be terrified, come to Jesus. He loves you, by the way. <laughs> it's kind of a bit topsy-turvy, isn't it? It's not made up by them, but the one person who spoke about hell more than anybody else in Scripture, the first person to define it specifically and the first person to really overtly warn us about hell was Jesus himself so we're going to look at a number of verses I'm going to do a quick overview a number of different verses that describe hell and we can learn what we can learn from that then we'll talk about why it's necessary and then talk about our response so I'm going to talk about three things the outer darkness eternal choice and then a passage home first of all there's just a note I just need to make Hell is not the devil's HQ. You can see it in the movies. You can imagine, even in the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis's famous uh, 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 book about letters between uh, devils talking about a, a believer and they're, they're, they're making their plans how to deceive this believer. Uh, you, can, you can picture this image almost like the devil sitting behind a big mahogany desk in his office, sending his minions off from, from hell. He's in his big tower block office, his Trump Tower. Ooh, uh, joking. Uh, but that kind of thing... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I said that out loud, didn't I? Uh, sitting behind his big desk, sending his minions off to do their evil plans back on earth. Hell is not the devil's HQ. Earth is. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. We can do a bit of skipping about, just so you're forewarned. Revelation 12, verse 9. This is what happened back in the day when, when the devil, Satan, rebelled and some of his um, followers did with him some other fallen angels. Revelation 12, verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. He's here. This is where he operates. This is his base. Which means either you need to be aware and very concerned, because he is 
he has some power. We don't give him too much credit, and Christ is far greater. He pales in, in, in insignificance in comparison. But he has some power, and he does have evil plans and ploys to deceive us. And he's very deceptive. He's even described as an angel of light. He's very good at lying. He's here. Be aware and concerned, but if you're in Christ, you don't need to be aware and concerned. You just need to be aware and emboldened. Because Jesus' best friend John, in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4, he says, He who is in, in us is greater than he who is in the world. The devil might be here, but if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit, you have God inside you who is far, far greater and you don't need to be frightened. We can rest in that. Hell is reserved for the devil's future. You see that in Revelation 20. That's where he's sent in the future. That's where he'll get his eternal punishment. But for now, he's here. But hell isn't just reserved for him. Hell is reserved for others as well, which we're going to look at now. I'm going to go for a brief overview, just a few verses, just to get an idea of how the Bible describes it. First of all, uh, Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verse 15. This is what happens at the Great Judgment. We're going to see a few verses that describe what happens at the Great Judgment in the future. Revelation 20, Revelation is the final book of the Bible, quite appropriately placed, talking about the end times. Revelation 15, oh, sorry, 20, verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that's the list of God's people who is saved, if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, is what it's called. Yeah, ooh, that doesn't sound good, does it? The lake of fire. If you turn to the next chapter, verse 20, uh, chapter 21, and look at verse 8. Revelation 21, verse 8, continues. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Anybody here who's never lied? We're all liable to be on that list. Oh, April, you just lied. Yeah. <laughs> we are all liable to be on that list, actually. We can look at that and go, oh yeah, that's the real baddies. Actually, we're all liable to be on there. And as a result, your destiny, by default, is this lake of fire. There it is again, a lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Turn to Matthew chapter 13, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 13. This is Jesus' own words. Matthew 13, verse 49. Here again, Jesus is talking about the great judgment to come and he says, Matthew 13, 49, So it will be at the close of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, he's now describing it, a fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That phrase will come up again in a second. Doesn't sound good, does it? A fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's hear Jesus' words again. Two books ahead. Luke, verse 16. We're coming to the end of our skipping around. Luke 16, verse 22. Here he is telling a story, a parable. It's one of his stories where he describes a notion, helps to get across a message. And he's talking about a, uh, a poor man and a rich man who both die. And the poor man goes to heaven, the rich man goes to hell, Hades. And it's not a question about how much money you've got as to where you're going to go. That's missing the point of the story. It's about the question of the heart. Okay? But he says in verse 22, 
The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. He's gone to heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, hell, another word for hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I'm in anguish in this flame. All he wants is one drip off the end of a finger. Will bring him some relief. Just understand the torment is in here. And again he's describing flames. We've got a lake of fire. got a fiery furnace. We've got a place of flame and utter torment. One more verse for now. Back to Matthew, verse 25. Because this changes the picture a little bit. But adds to it as well. Matthew 25 Verse 30. Again, this is Jesus' words again. Again, he's told another story about a bunch of servants, some of whom have invested and appreciated and made the most of what God has given them effectively. And there's this one, what he describes as a worthless servant, who has not. He's rejected and despised what, what he's been given. And so this is what he says about this worthless servant. Verse 30, 25 verse 30. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness is now how he's describing it. In that place, again, here we go, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lake of fire, a fiery furnace, a place of flame or outer darkness. Interesting, isn't it? Much picture language is used in Scripture to describe hell, as we've already seen. means we need to understand these are means more of a method of description than literal. You can see in the movies sometimes, you see this big volcanic crater on fire and the people treading water in it, help me, help me. It means a lot more than that. What it means is, if, for example, if I was a bit, I don't know, derogatory about a certain residential area, a certain council estate, and I described it as a dump, you'd know I mean it's not actually a dump. But you get an essence of what I'm trying to say. If I say somebody's house is a palace, you know straight away it's not an actual, and we're talking about the Queen, of course. Gen generally speaking, we're not actually talking about a palace, but you get the essence of what I mean when I use that metaphor. If I describe a tourist location as paradise, you know it's not actually paradise, but you know what I mean by that. Yeah? Does that make sense? And so in the same way, hell may not literally be a lava pit or a torture dungeon. It can't simultaneously, for example, be out of darkness and eternal fire. How does that work? Fire is light. Eternal darkness, eternal fire, it doesn't work. But we immediately understand the horror and the destitute abandonment that comes when you find yourself there. That's what the Bible is trying to get across. Not the literal details. It's hard to describe, but here's just a taste of how horrible it is. Let's look a little bit more about what Jesus says about hell, particularly that last description, out of darkness. And I trust this will help explain why hell needs to exist. Because I don't know about you, but I've come across a number of people who tell me, I'd rather go to hell, that's where my friends will be, that's where the party is. Let's read some of these verses again and find out where the party really is. Matthew 25 still, verse 29. It's just the end of that story about the worthless servant. He says, For to everyone who has, who has will be, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Skip to verse 41. He continues describing the final judgment in a new way. And he says, verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed. That's an important word. 
Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. There it is again. Prepared for the devil and his angels. So they get to join them. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. He, again, he questions their heart. He says, you've just proved your worth. You've proved where your heart really was. And then he goes, verse 46, and these will go into, away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment or eternal life? Which one's got the party? <laughs> when people say I want to go where the party is I'm going to hell with my friends they've got a false notion of what heaven's like and they've got a false notion of what hell's like that word cursed I just mentioned is very important because this is where outer darkness comes in which is why it's such a significant description to be cursed in the Hebrew world meant to be judged that's what cursed means means to be judged have judgment over you it means to be judged and removed from the camp for something you've done, for, who you, for, for what you've done. It means to be out and no longer in. It means to be excommunicated from the community where there is, in community, there is favour, there is strength in unity, there is intimacy and shared supplies, there's support, strength, nurture, community. It's being cast out from that. To be in the outer darkness means to be cast away from society and abandoned into isolation and rejection. That's what it means to be cursed, judged, and sent out into the outer darkness. Which is why there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing is a funny old word, it just means grinding. You're in such torment, not just physical, but just by an awareness of how isolated and abandoned and rejected and cursed you are, there's a grinding of your teeth. Utter emotional, spiritual torment. Because here's the thing. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, coming from the Father of lights. Every good thing comes from God. Every good thing. And so to be separate from God, to be cast out into the outer darkness, means to be apart from everything that is good. If you suddenly take God out of the equation, we lose all favour all camaraderie, all community, all providence, all mercy, all joy, all peace, and on the list goes. Is that where the party is? To be cast out into the outer darkness is rejected away, sent away from all that is good. Now we're getting a flavour of what hell is really like. I suggest it's probably going to be some kind of solitary confinement for every individual. If community, union, intimacy is a good thing and suddenly that's removed, I don't think you're going to see anyone. I don't know, that's just my own, just putting two and two together, I don't know. There's some things we don't know. But I'm getting a flavour of that. How long does it last for? Well, verse 46 just said here, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Some say punishment in hell does end. Some people believe that. I think sometimes that is emotionally wrought. It's just the horrible notion to think that will go on forever. It's nice to think it will come, and come to an end. I struggle to find that in the text. Uh, elsewhere in Revelation 14 says the smoke of their torment will go on forever. Some will argue that the smoke of their torment goes, goes on forever, but their torment doesn't. <laughs> I think we're starting to do a bit of origami with the pages. I, I don't know. But either way, to be honest... 
People talk about annihilation, that's what it means. You suffer for a time and then you're annihilated, you no longer exist, but the righteous continue for an eternal party in heaven and on the new earth. It's called, it's, it's, it's the opposite to eternal conscious torment is the other doctrinal term. There's annihilation and ECT, eternal conscious torment. To be honest, if you suffer for a long time and then it stops and you cease to exist, I'll happily agree to disagree. That's just where I currently stand on what the word eternal means. But, to be honest, either way, it's a horror story. <laughs> I mean, we can quibble over details. Either way, it's a horror story with no happy ending. Jesus is telling us that hell is real. Jesus is telling us that hell is horror. And he warns us. Why? Because we are all, he- or we are all born heading in that direction. Why? Why should we be born heading in that direction? Is that fair? Well, this is where it comes down to eternal choice. See, sin is a word we use, and it, sin is a problem. Sin has stained our existence since the first humans thought they knew better. What is sin? Sin is, our, sin is a sickness that we can recognize or choose to ignore, but it's there. There is something innately wrong with us. Every time we try and fix things, we screw it up. Every time we think we've got the answer, we screw it up. Have we as mankind in our enlightened 21st century state come up with the answer to all the problems in this world? No. What's the cause of most of the problems in this world? Us. Absolutely. There's something going on that we can't fix. The cogs are slightly out of sync. There's something not right. There's a crack in our spirit. It's our brokenness, our inability to be perfect, that wears the face of selfishness and greed and rebellion and so on. And it's a blight on our bond with God because he is so perfect. Our, the evil weight of sin is not rooted in, our, in man's moral code. It's not rooted in what we define as right and wrong because that keeps shifting. We keep changing that to what suits us as to what's right and wrong as cultures and as generations. But the evil weight of sin is rooted in how beautiful and perfect God is. You see, he is the benchmark of what it means to be perfect and what it means to be whole. And we are so far beneath that, we can't even see the top of it. We have to realise this. We fall far, far short of it. And because we do, he has to deal with that. He can't ignore it. Because if he doesn't deal with that, he diminishes his great love down to a weak sentiment. Oh, don't worry about it, it's all right. No, he loves us so much, he's got to do something about it. The cliche is, we have an Old Testament God of wrath and a New Testament God of love. That's completely false. Because in the Old Testament, we've also got a God who covers sinful mankind in their shame. He covers them. We've got a God who woos and romances his people like a husband does to a wife. We've got a God who sings love songs over his people. Is that a God of wrath? And yet also in the New Testament, we've got Jesus, the great loving God who gave himself for us, also speaking of hell and judgment. And in Revelation, at the final judgment, we see him wielding a big sword and a big scepter in justice and war, dealing with sin. That's Jesus. Is God a God of wrath or a God of love? The answer is yes. But why is he a God of wrath? Because he hates sin, he's angry, and he's got to do something about it. 
Because this demonstrates not a God who is harsh and merciless, but one who cares about injustice and one who cares about the cries of victims. It demonstrates good character, not bad. Suddenly we like the sound of that, don't we? A God who deals with injustice. I like that. Except the bad news is we've all sinned against others. (laughs) All of us. We have all hurt other people in different ways and to different degrees, but we've all done that. Actually, we all have victims. It's quite sobering, but it's true. Things we've said, things we've thought can be just as bad. Things we've done. And that means we all deserve punishment. And for God to ignore that would be a blemish on his good character. How can we hope for a God who is constantly pure and good and then demand that he let sin slide to one side? We can't. We can't have our cake and eat it. He is a God of wrath because he is a God of love. And one day, you and I will have to give an account. What kind of judge should he be? Would you rather a God who lets you off? Because if so, he's got to let everyone else off too. Or would you rather a God who rules in utter integrity? Hard as it is, I know what my answer should be. So when a judge lets someone off lightly, all hell breaks loose in the press and the media, about justice, we demand justice. This is wrong. How could he have done? How could he let that man back on the streets after what he's done? This is wrong. And something needs to be done about it. It bothers us, doesn't it? It cuts to the quick. Last month in the US, a man was sent to jail for filming a fatal shooting by a police officer. And while he was sent to jail for using his phone, videoing this fatal shooting, the police officer responsible walked scot-free. And it exploded on the internet. This is wrong. He filmed on his phone, goes to jail. The officer who, shoot, who shot wrongly and killed someone has got away with it again. This is wrong. It, it bothers us, doesn't it? And the main reason we as society don't like to contemplate hell is because it's such a horrible notion. And we like to think we're all destined for somewhere nice and peaceful, away from sin and sickness and shame, except for the few people we consider should go to hell. And yet, while we're happy to build a case against others, we're actually building a case against ourselves. If we demand perfect justice, sort that person out, they did wrong, they need to be sorted out. If we demand that, we put ourselves in front of the firing squad too. We've all got things to be judged for. Hell has to exist in order for justice to be fulfilled. It has to exist. It can't not. It's a horrible notion, but it has to exist. You see in Ezekiel, I'm going to consult other references later, but it just comes to me. I know in Ezekiel, you see where, where it proves that God hates sending people to hell. He hates it, but he has to. He can't not, or it will betray his good character. And ultimately, it's not just God sending people to hell. We do. People do. Does the responsibility for a prison sentence lie at the feet of the judge who deals it out, Or does the responsibility for that prison sentence actually lie at the feet of the person who's committed the crime? It's not the judge's fault. He's doing the right thing. It's the person who committed the crime. So to blame God for sending people to hell, he's doing the right thing. We make a choice here on earth and he honours it for eternity. It's God giving us what we have chosen. But the good news is, There is a passage home. Into community 
into eternity with him, where the real party is. I know many people who have died, and I know all of you do as well. I just lost one of my very long-term ambulance crewmates just in the past couple of, couple of weeks to uh, esophageal cancer. It was a horrible death, and he died. He was one of my mates at work. Did lots of shifts with him, with a muck about. It's horrible. I don't know where he is. The people I know, I've loved, who I've known of, who've died, I don't know where they've gone. And I can't assume. Sometimes we can have an idea. Normally you're pretty certain if someone's saved, but if you're not, I don't want to say they've definitely not. But quite likely, though, they could be somewhere else entirely. It's a horrible thought. I can't speak for them, but I can speak for myself. I'm responsible for my own choices. I'm responsible for the things I've done, the things I do, the things I think. I'm responsible for my own heart crimes against God's high benchmark of perfection. I'm responsible for that. And you're responsible for yours. What can I do about that? Well, I could ignore the issue and hope for the best. Well, I'll be on a paradise island. We'll just be playing harps and returning to earth as butterflies to tell our grandchildren we still love them. We can wish these things to make ourselves feel better, but not actually deal with the problem, can't we? We can ignore the issue and hope for the best, or I can think I can fix the problem. I'll be better, I'll give more money to charity and I'll do nicer things and I'll cut my neighbour's grass. Or I can accept that I'm in dire need of rescue and I can look to the judge himself for mercy to guarantee my freedom. Not because I deserve it, but because he offers it. So it's the same, you could be walking around with a fatal condition and you could be oblivious to it. You could be, uh, despite the symptoms that are staring you in the face, you can just think, oh, they'll go away, it'll be all right. And actually you're dying. You could act like that or you could think, yes, I am seriously ill, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to get my super glue and my stitches and my kitchen knife, I'm going to cut out the wrong bits or I'm going to self-medicate myself by something I found on the internet because eBay told me it was safe. We can try and fix it ourselves. Either way, it's foolish, isn't it? Or you can cry out to the doctor who is able to save you. Being blind to the symptoms of sickness is ignorance and still carries a responsibility in and of itself. Being blind to sin doesn't excuse you from judgment for what you've done and what you've thought and what you've said. And merely seeing the symptoms of sin isn't enough either. Realising we can't fix it means asking for help to the only one who can. There's only one big enough. And that judge's name is Jesus. We don't look to him because we deserve it and we demand it. We can only look to him because he offers it. Mercy. He suffered in our place. He took the sentence that we rightly deserve that we might receive release from this sickness and its consequential banishment from community for eternity with him. Away from all that is good and instead he welcomes us home because of what he's, he's done for us. That offer is on the plate but you need to receive it. Otherwise it's not yours. You need to look to him for mercy. It bothered Jesus enough that he spoke about this consequence, hell, more than anyone else in Scripture. It bothered him. What, one of the things that gets me up in the morning is that 38,000 people in this town heading in that direction right now. It bothers me, and it should bother you. 
As believers, it should inspire us to celebrate what a good God he is, what he has done for us. It should inspire us to preach the good news to others. If you don't believe, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Saviour right now, I implore you not to bury your head in the sand because that doesn't solve the problem. I implore you to listen to the voice inside that says there is a problem and something needs to be done about it. That problem won't go away. Just ask yourself, what if there was someone who could rescue you into eternal peace and rest? Just ask yourself, what if? Before I come to a close, I just want to show you a video. There's a magician in America called Penn Gillette. I don't know if you've heard about him. Um, he's from a double, double act called Penn and Teller. You might recognise his face in a minute. He's an atheist. Still is. Staunch atheist. But I just want to show... I've just cut, cut together a slice of a thing he did to his phone a few years ago that he put on the internet. It's really helpful. Um, one of the words he uses quite a lot is proselytise. It just means to preach. When he says the word proselytise, he's talking about preaching. Okay, But... Just watch this, be provoked. If we can just uh, pop the lights. Thanks, Luke. Watch this and then uh, we'll finish. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I get home from the show, and at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we, uh, we talk to folks and you know, sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament, little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing, and I've always said, you know, that I I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell, or not getting eternal life, or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. But this guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible. It, it goes on. There's, there's more to it. But I just trust that's provoked us. <laughs> An atheist saying to us, if you really believe eternal life is available to me, how much must you hate me not to tell me? We've all got friends. We've all got loved ones. We've all got neighbours, workmates. 
Now, there's, there's a place for sensitivity and knowing how to broach these conversations, of course. We don't shove Jesus down their throat. They won't receive it like that. But in relationship and in conversation, how much do we love people and how much do we want to lead them to Christ, invite them to get to meet who could be their saviour? This great judge who does express mercy because of what he did. Just believer, if you know Christ, let me just ask you this. What has that video said to you? What is uh, Holy Spirit highlighting for you right now? Just dwell on that for a moment. And friend, if you don't know Christ, when I speak of injustice and the need to fix that problem, does that resonate with you? Does that just prick at something in your heart? How do you think you fit into that equation when it comes to a God who sees and knows you? Everything you've thought, said and done that others probably may not even know, how do you think you fit into that equation? What would you say to him? Please know this, that he has done something to fix this cosmic problem. In his immense love, he has made it possible for you to never experience the agonies of hell, but you're able to run into his goodness and enjoy that forever. The answer is a person, the answer is Jesus. There's a, one of our pastors in South Africa, PJ Smythe, he says, life is short and hell is hot. What do you need to do about it? Let me just pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a good and merciful God. We thank you that you cared so much about us. You loved us enough that you told us about the consequences of our sickness, the consequences of the sin in our hearts. Lord, thank you that you were willing to stare us in the face and help us realise quite what's at stake here. You didn't care what we thought of you. You just cared enough to tell us this. Lord, you didn't even stop there. You cared enough to do something about it yourself. You came down to suffer the punishment in our place, to suffer an agonising death. And in that moment, as Father turned his face away, you knew what it meant to experience hell in that moment. That moment of destitution and that agony the opposite of what you'd already always known. Having known God's love, Father's love, Holy Spirit, that community, that eternal dance, to know that forever until suddenly in that moment, standing in our place, was empty and dead and cold. Lord, thank you that you were willing to suffer that on our behalf, that we might never have to. Lord, inspire us to celebrate in light of that amazing truth. Inspire us to tell others. Inspire us to point others to you. Inspire us to invite others to come and meet you. Inspire us to warn others. Give us the words to say. Give us when not to speak, when to speak up. Holy Spirit, we need your help to know the sensitivity of those moments. But Jesus, first and foremost, we say thank you, thank you, thank you that we might live with you forever. In your name we pray. Amen.